there's a sort of a reckless lack of integrity in in politics, and the the people that should be holding politicians to account, each other and the media, just aren't doing it. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. William Bly suffered two rebellions in his life, a mutiny when he was captain of the Bounty and the Rum Rebellion when he was governor of New South Wales. But his views appealed to the Turnbull family, which decided to give the men in their lineage the middle name of Bly. So it might seem fitting then that two centuries later, Malcolm Bly Turnbull would suffer two rebellions against him as Liberal leader. And yet on any fair reading, Malcolm Turnbull has had a remarkably successful career. Several remarkably successful careers, in fact. He's been a Rhodes Scholar, journalist, barrister, investment banker and Prime Minister and claims in his new book, A Bigger Picture, to now be looking forward to, quote, playing a more active role in public life now that he's left politics. Malcolm, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Uh, Great, Andrew. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot for inviting us. Now, there's two big relationships that run through the book, your father, Bruce, and your wife, Lucy. Uh, what have you learned from each of them about living a good life? Well, from Lucy, uh, it would be impossible to give you a one-line answer to that, but I suppose one of the best bits of advice I've had from Lucy has been you can't live your life backwards. Uh, and so she has always been a very... Uh, someone who's always on the front foot and encouraging me to not, you know, to not look backwards and to be always focused on the next, you know, on the next thing rather than, uh, you know, fretting about whether you know got something right or wrong in the past. And to be honest, you know, that's my nature anyway. So I guess that's one of the reasons we we've always been such good friends uh, is because we're both very much in the here and now. And your father, Bruce, you've referred to him in the book as being a little more like a brother than a father, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, well, he was, you know, he was, I mean, Bruce was, uh, Bruce was, um, I guess, you know, in his early, you know, in his 30s when, when all the relevant times, and so he was a relatively young dad. Um, he, I guess what he, he, lesson, he, most important lesson he gave me, he gave me so many. He was uh, the value and the importance of unconditional love because he was, you know, he was very, very loyal, very, he, he's, you know, his love for me was uh, absolute and, at, you know, particularly when my mother left us, that was so important. To not speak ill at all of your uh, your mother during that period yes. was, uh, was an extraordinary extraordinary thing. Really speaks to to his love for his only child. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I mean, it, it is. It's amazing. It's, you know, I, I I had I had no idea how extraordinary it was at the time, obviously. But looking back on it, boy, that was you know that was 
love. It was also terrific self-discipline uh, to be able to do that. And he would look. He was Bruce was a Bruce was. I mean, if you if Bruce was here today, uh, and you know, if he hadn't been killed in a plane crash when he was fifty-six, he probably would be. Although he'd be a very old man. Um, he would. You know, you would get on so well with him, Andrew. He uh, he is. Just, he was a marathon runner, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a marathon runner, uh, and he was very. Uh, he was sort of more. He was sort of somewhere between my build and your build. Um, so he's more. The, he's basically the same same build as my son, our son Alex, um, mm-hmm. and um, so smaller physically than me. Um, and he very 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 good natural athlete. You know, he's good at football, at swimming, at running, riding, uh, and. Um, but also just very charming and very, very funny. You know, he had a, had a wealth of stories. And because he was a salesman, he's a hotel broker, so, you know, that, that helped, I guess. But he was, uh, he was always, always very good company. And just on Lucy, one of the things I've, one of, one of the, the most beautiful lines I've heard you say about your relationship there is that as time's gone on, you've started to lose a sense of, you as individuals, uh, with it without uh, without uh, you as a collective unit. Well, I, I yeah, I have a stronger sense of me and Lucy than I do of me. Uh, we're very very tight, very good, very good friends, uh, and that is the that's you know that's the most that's the, you know that is really the most important thing. I mean, I am always happier in her company. How do you shape that in a relationship involving two ambitious people in which obviously you must sort of uh, rub up against one another the wrong way in which all, all couples do? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think just respect and consideration. Uh, you know, you've got to, you've got to recognise in a relationship that, uh, you know, if you... If you want someone to be considerate to you or respectful of you, you've got to be respectful of them. You know, so it's always been a very equal relationship. It's a partnership, and we've done so many things together. Not you know, not not just you know, be husband and wife and mother and father. Um, we've um, you know, we've had a lot of adventures together. The uh, the, the spy catcher trial being. You know, one one of the most colourful, but there are many others, many others, business deals and other adventures that we've had. The um, the spy catcher trial has a very funny Canberra story to it. I don't know how many of your listeners are in Canberra, but many. Well, we finally got we finally got to you know we won the trial uh, and then we won in the court of appeal in New South Wales and then we got to the High Court. And for reasons I never understood, the British government were always really confident they'd win in the High Court. And I, yet I was really confident we would win. And I, you know, my, my concern always was that we, we would lose, you know, we could lose further down the, the you know, the legal totem pole, as it were. Um, but I was very confident we'd win in the High Court. And um, anyway, so we got there. We're going there, and Lucy, the league, our legal team was me and Lucy, and, and I was admitted in the federal courts uh, as a barrister and solicitor, but I, I didn't, 
I used to appear on road, which used to sort of peeve some of the old barristers a bit. But um, and Lucy, but Lucy was not. She was admitted as a solicitor in New South Wales at the time, but not in the federal courts. And so <coughs> the clerk, um, the clerk of the court, uh, had said to me that she couldn't sit at the bar table. You have to sit at the solicitor's instructing table, you know, which in the High Court is quite a long way away. And yes, and I said to him, "Well, look, that's not going to work. You know, it's got to, we've got to be next to each other uh, for practical purposes." And so I said, "Okay, well, I think this is what I'll do. I'll save save you worrying about it. I'll file a summons for a motion for an order that she be allowed to sit at the bar table with me." And he went, "Oh." <laughs> All right, so he said, let me talk to the Chief Justice. So he talked to Tony Mason and and came back, you know, the next day or whenever and said, um, I've spoken to the Chief Justice and he said, no need to file a summons. Lucy can sit at the bar table, on the bar table. She can recline under the bar table. I don't care where she sits. <laughs> So she didn't want to hear about it, but it was, but it was, you know, it was just a good example of the the fustiness of of the legal profession. But interestingly, the in that case, so, so the spycatcher case, I mean, was was fascinating. I mean, it's like a it's like a novel, you know, the the spy thriller, you know, because it's all about well, spies and it was, you know, the British government's cabinet secretary came out to Australia and was. You know, lying in the court, and I'll come back to a bit about his lying in a minute. But um, so it was full of political drama. It was a huge, huge front page political story in Australia and in, even more in the UK. Anyway, um, as a good advocate, I sensible advocate. Anyway, I focused on the facts at the trial, and we had a lot of legal argument. And there was one rather arcane legal argument. Which was that the whole case was, un, was you know, was unmaintainable. It almost should have been struck out on the basis that it was the British government seeking to enforce a foreign public law in Australia, that is to say, the Official Secrets Act. And this argument got scant, well, not scant. It got, it didn't get a lot of attention from the trial judge, which was right. It got a bit more attention in the Court of Appeal. And when we got up to the High Court, as I was elaborating on this, Mason said, um, well, Mr Turnbull, if your submissions on foreign public law are, are you know, are, are right, if we were to accept these, then um, uh, the, all of this evidence is irrelevant and you're, you, know, you must be, uh, your client will have, you know, has to succeed, doesn't it? And I said, well, that's, that's our submission and and returned to my opponent, Mr. Samos, who said, yes, you know, essentially, incredibly so. And they looked, he looked to the left and looked to the right, and I could just see the judges all thinking, huh, okay, so this is how we come to the right conclusion, i.e. the right people win, uh, but we don't have to get into an unedifying discussion about whether the Cabinet Secretary of the United Kingdom has committed perjury in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. <laughs> So, and that's exactly, so that's why the High Court decision is very slender. Now, that argument was researched and written by Lucy. So, you know, so she's a, she's a really 
she, she's a, probably like me, a bit rusty nowadays, but the, she was a, a really fine uh, black letter lawyer in those days. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, but anyway, I'll just give you the little footnote to this. So, and I refer to this in the book. So I wrote a book about the Spycatra trial, called the Spycatra trial, which uh, was, you know, published a long time ago, uh, 89, I think it was. And um, anyway, part of uh, our argument in the court was that Armstrong had had lied. And he Armstrong had said that there, there was this book called Trade is Treachery. It was written by a guy called Chapman Fincher, who was essentially a friendly right-wing journalist, worked for the Daily Express, but was much favoured with briefings from MI5 and MI6. And he um, had published this book, which revealed the claims that Roger Hollis, director of MI5 in the 60s, had been a Russian agent. Um, this, of course, was Wright's big, Peter Wright, the old spy catcher's big obsession. And he had got a lot of information from Wright, and Wright was his major informant. And the British government had been aware this book was coming out, and in fact, had even got a copy of it, um, but had not injuncted it. And so part of my case was, not only is the stuff in Spycatcher in the public domain, i.e. it's no longer confidential, but you connived in putting it there. So mm. how can you restrain us public republishing it in a bit? And they, Armstrong said, we had legal advice that we couldn't injunct it. And my response was to say, well, that's clearly wrong. You know, if you had, if the Attorney General told you that he's either a fool or a knave, you know, either shouldn't have got a law degree or he was giving you bum legal advice. Anyway, we put a lot of heat on, uh, on the British government and Neil Kinnock, the Labour opposition leader, was very helpful in that regard. Uh, and finally, Havers had to, um, uh, you know, cracked and went to Thatcher and said, look, you know, Armstrong may be your cabinet secretary, but he's, he, what he's saying in the court in Sydney is not true. And so Bob Armstrong had to, you know, do a reversal and he apologised to the court and, you know, all of that stuff, which, of course, is never very helpful for your client's case. Anyway, so that was, that was all good. But when I put to him, I said to him at one point, I said, this exercise with Pincher. This was a conspiracy, wasn't it? You you wanted to get this story out through the pen of a safe conservative journalist rather than some, you know, left-wing, you know, hack on The Guardian or something, some, some characteristically bullion language like that. Anyway, Armstrong says, oh, that's just a, you know, that's a complete conspiracy theory, utterly untrue. Anyway, fast forward to this year, maybe late last year, Charles Moore comes out with the third volume of the official biography of Margaret Thatcher. He's had access to all of her papers, interviewed all the staff. Armstrong admits, and there is documentary evidence to support this, that it was actually at the initiative of number 10 that Chapman Pincher wrote this book, Traders Treachery. So my ingenious conspiracy theory was actually completely correct. And, of course, so what they did was they got Pincher in, because he was, just as I said, a safely conservative journalist, briefed him as to what to write. He took all that. But then unbeknownst to them, or so we, so 
made, so it's quite likely the case, through the Lord Rothschild, who got in touch with Wright and, of course, wrote a book that was not quite what Number 10 had expected. So, you know, it was, so Armstrong was not just misleading the court. He was downright lying, and which and very interesting uh, that someone of that distinction would think they could do that. But it just shows the hubris of the British sort of Whitehall establishment. Anyway, he's a perfectly nice man. The, the limited uh, interaction I had with him, he died recently too. But, but you know, it's... it's uh, it is um, it's fascinating, you know. That, so anyway, that that update is in my book, but it's a it's an intriguing story, this firecatcher story. It really is. The, the the story behind the books is almost more interesting than the hijinks of all the bugging and sp- spying and stuff that Wright talks about in his tale. And I've always enjoyed the irony that uh, one of the ways in which you successfully defended your uh, client was uh, by saying that, in fact, his book was not as original as uh, some readers might have thought. Yeah, exactly. I, I was going, going to, uh, to to ask you about uh, your interplay between business and uh, politics. Uh, you're quite unusual in having served at the, the top echelons of both in Australia, and, and now you're you're back in business. So what do you find you, you've, you've missed about it? What do you really enjoy about business? Uh, well, I, I, I mean, you know, business is covers a multitude of callings and occupations. Um, I mean, what I've enjoyed most in business is uh, the creative side of it. I like either starting or supporting and getting involved with new businesses, you know, typically technology businesses. I, I have a passion for innovation. Uh, so I like the creative side of business. I used to quite enjoy all of the drama of big takeover deals and M and A. Uh, I used to do a lot of that, uh, but I, you know that I've got no interest in returning to that kind of work. But I do like the um, I do like the I do like the sort of startup early stage investment area. It's you know it's definitely uh, there's a thrill seeking aspect to it. And the, Sense that you can, you know, lose a lot of money in that line of business, and I've started a lot of businesses over the years, and you know, some of them have been very unsuccessful. Some of them just, you know, lost all the money <laughs> we invested in them. But um, I, I, it, it's 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 great, you know, when you get something new, particularly if it's a bit disruptive. I think I'm a I'm a natural disruptor. I'm not a it sounds odd for someone my background, you know, former Liberal Prime Minister, but I'm not naturally a sort of a, an establishment <clears throat> type. I like to be um, shaking up the established order more than, uh, uh, you know, uh, defending it, if you like. You know what I mean? At least in business. Thinking back to the business career you pursued through the 1980s and 1990s in, in media, IT, investment banking, could you give us one insight from that time in corporate Australia that, that wouldn't be obvious to people who haven't worked at those, uh, those levels uh, of, uh, of, of investment banking, finance, business? I can't think of anything uh, off the top of my head, Andrew. I mean, I was, you know, the... Um, I'll tell you a story about about um, uh, an insight I tried to give once as a endeavour to uh, break the ice. Um, it's about it must be would be about nineteen 
90 or thereabouts, um, early 90s anyway, and Channel 10 has gone bankrupt. Um, well, it is broke, basically. And we were, we being Terminal Partners, were retained by Westpac, uh, who were its big lender, to advise them as to what to do. And we put, we put in a receiver and restructured the network and, and you know, turned it into a profitable business, actually, uh, although, you know, with, with lower revenues. Anyway, well, that was all very interesting. But so this is, we had a first meeting in the Westpac boardroom. This is Casso Connor and I. And, you know, all these bankers are there and they've lost so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars, a hell of a lot of money in those days. And, and so Cass said, uh, gosh, we need to do, got to think of something to break the ice. So I thought I couldn't think of anything terribly funny. So I said at the outset, I said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, in the television industry, we must never forget there is a, an iron rule, uh, that which is that you must always ensure your revenues exceed your expenditure. This is meant to be a joke. Right? Anyway, they all wrote it down, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I, and I, my heart sank. And then there was one of them, that gentleman called Harvey Garnett from Westpac, who was the head of risk there, and he finished writing down, he looked at what he'd written down, he looked at me and said, completely deadpan, this would apply in other industries as well. <laughs> no, I... You're not painting the most wonderful picture of Australia's business elites. Well, it was, you know, it was just, it was, yes, it was just, um, I didn't, we didn't, Cass and I didn't quite know what to make of that experience. <laughs> it was often terrifying. <laughs> You're sort of you're quite critical of uh, of business at certain points. You talk about the uh, workaholics at Goldman working till oh, midnight yeah. and uh, imperiling their relationships, and and you have this this really interesting section on character where you talk about character mattering much more in politics than in business, um, which seems to in some sense imply that uh, uh, it's easier to get by being a person of low character in uh, in, in business. Uh, or am I misreading things there? That's not quite what I meant. I mean, character is important everywhere. But in the reason I guess it's even more important in politics is that the sanctions for telling untruths, deliberate or not, in politics are very minimal. You know, the, I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of politicians are completely reckless about whether what they're saying is accurate, and they don't care. They honestly don't care. Um, I've always been uh, anxious that I get the facts straight. You know, that's why I was more obviously mortified about the Codden Gretsch business when I made a false allegation about Rudd. But I mean, leaving that aside, you know, more mundane things like getting a, a number wrong or a date wrong or something like that, I used to get very anxious about that. And that is probably the lawyer in me, you know, remembering how unforgiven, unforgiving, you know, grumpy judges can be if you get your facts wrong in court. Um, and but I, I think that you know there's a sort of there's a sort of a reckless lack of integrity in in politics, and the the people that should be holding politicians to account, each other and the media, just aren't doing it. I mean, 
you, you know, you, you know, I don't want to have a partisan arc, argument with you, but, you know, the a good example was the Mediscare in 2016, you know, and I, you know, I, I should have nailed that lie a lot sooner than we did. But, you know, the proposition that the coalition was going to sell Medicare is ludicrous, right? I mean... Or similarly, the suggestion that we'd reinstate inheritance taxes. Yeah, which right. we hadn't uh, A policy we hadn't had since 1979. Correct. Ex exactly right. And basically, uh, in each case, a, a false claim was, um, uh, you know, um, weaponised and despite its absurdity, was deployed to great effect uh, with, uh, in the case of Medi-Scare, uh, people who were older, poorer and less healthy. And so, you know, in a number of marginal seats, for example, in Tasmania, it was really potent. In my electorate and probably in your electorate, wouldn't have had any impact. People would have known it was ridiculous. Uh, but it was uh, so. It's a real. It's a real problem. Uh, and you see, we 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 kind of assumed. Uh, I mean, this is the lesson I learned. the lesson I learned from that was that you cannot assume in the age of social media and the ability to directly digitally communicate with voters as you can now. Um, you you cannot assume that. Uh, an outrageous lie will be called out and seen for what it is. Uh, so in other words, you've got to take a whack-a-mole approach and when the lies come up, even if they are completely ludicrous, you know, hit them on the head and hit them on the head hard. Yeah, I mean, putting those two examples to, to one side, I am reminded of that uh, lovely essay by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt on bullshit, uh, no. where he says that the bullshitter is even worse than the liar because at least the liar has some respect for the truth. Uh, the bullshitter simply sees facts as, uh, as weapons to be deployed willy-nilly and really doesn't care at all whether, uh, whether things are true or false. Yeah, well, you know, there's one, I won't, I won't say who it is, but just for delicacy's sake, but... The, there was one prominent Labor politician, former colleague of yours, who used to go out and say, make, say the most dreadful, you know, just make the same sort of false claim uh, all the time. And I said to him once, I said, why do you keep on saying this? Because it's clearly not true. Everyone knows it's not true. And he just laughed and he said, I get the line up every time. Right? And so... Yes. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the, that is the problem. And you see the press gallery increasingly don't call this out. They applaud the politician for being clever. Yes, being, being interesting is more important than being right in so many of these cases. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, sure. There's this point about a third of the way through the book when you're age 55 and it feels like there's a bit of a shift of pace. Uh, you seem to be careening through your business career into politics and then you lose the Liberal leadership in 2009 and fall into depression. And the rest of the book is fast-paced but it doesn't have the same frenetic feel, Malcolm, of that first section. Uh, what did your battle with depression in 2010 teach you? Uh, well, it, firstly, it taught me a lot about depression um, and it taught me that we should be as careful about our mental health as we are about our physical health. Um, most of us aren't even aware of our mental health. It's only hope. Well, I'm, I'm, that's a rash assumption. I, I certainly wasn't. Um, 
I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it was, I think it sort of, it was humbling. Uh, it was uh, frightening. It was. Um, I think it made me calmer, probably a bit more, a bit more zen, not as uh, uh, aggressively ambitious as I'd been when I was younger. Perhaps. Certainly, I felt I was wiser. You uh, yes, you talk about yourself as being a stronger person and a better person as a result of it. Uh, yeah, I think, well, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, others, uh, others would have to be better judges than that, I suppose. Uh, both Menzies and Howard uh, had two goes at leadership of the, uh, of the party, and, and both were, I think, better leaders when they came back the second time. Uh, I remember when I interviewed John Howard for uh, my book, The Luck of Politics, he said it was partly because he didn't sweat the small stuff and he, he paid more attention to uh, the views of his party room. Mm. Uh, did you feel that you were uh, a better leader in your second act? Uh, yeah, what did yeah. you, how was your leadership uh, improved by having, uh, having lost once? Well, I, I became very, uh, I was, became a great convert to uh, process, not, not in a you know, painstaking bureaucratic way, but I was determined to run a very disciplined sort of prop traditional cabinet government. I and mean, this is one of my criticisms of Abbott and one of the reasons I challenged Abbott because cabinet government had basically ceased to exist under his prime ministership. Uh, so I kind of learned from my own experience and also from observing him and to some extent Kevin, frankly. Uh, and so I was concerned that we, you know, that I, I was going to treat my cabinet ministers as my top advisors. I was going to treat them with respect. I trusted them, some of them obviously, uh, perhaps unwarrantedly. But, you know, I just felt that, that, that our system of government is you cannot successfully run the Australian government from the Prime Minister's office. And, you know, a lot of people have tried that. Uh, but it is a, it's a very, it, 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 you know, it can really run off the rails as it did with Abbott and, and, you know, many people would say with, um, with Kevin. So, so, you know, what, I mean, what is, you know, virtually no one in the press gallery has any interest in what the government actually does. As you know, they're only interested in the politics of it, but the very substantial achievements and reforms of my government would not have been possible had I not uh, adopted that very consultative, traditional approach. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that is, I mean, that, that's much of the book is about that. And I hope future prime ministers will um, reflect on that because the, you know, sort of, um, you know, Daily Telegraph, Sky News, uh, seat of the pants style of government, which is what we had with Abbott, um, is really is really bad from a policy. It's bad from a policy point of view, uh, and it's um, and ultimately it will end in political tears. But see, here, here's the thing. I mean, far too many people are in politics because they simply want to get up the greasy pot. Right? It's, a, it's the power is an end in itself. For me, I've never had any interest in power or the trappings of power. Uh, other than as a means of getting things done, doing worthwhile things, you know, you know, reforms of 
uh, of one kind or another. Uh, and the, um, there's a sort of, the, the, the sort of do nothing leadership model, which can, you can get away with at a state level for a while, um, is very, is very, very damaging and corrosive. So you've got to, you've really got to focus on, on, you know, what, what am I going to do to, you know, make Australia fairer, more prosperous, more innovative, more competitive? You know, address particular issues. Uh, you've got to be focused on that. So power, you know, power without purpose is pointless. In my view. Yes, it's that Weber distinction between those who live for politics and those who live off politics. Yeah, well, I see the political game. Some of my uh, colleagues and some of yours love the game of politics. They love it, but do they, they would have no political policy convictions at all. You know, most, you know, many of them. I mean, they just you find it very hard to find anything they actually have a strong view on, other than the desire to get up the greasy pole. Um, and that's, and you know, that generally involves climbing over someone else. I noticed that when you're a young man, you seem quite drawn to what you could learn from older men, people like Jack Lang, Neville Wran, Robert Hughes. Uh, was that a, a conscious decision? And, and now that you're 65, do you find yourself doing the reverse, uh, seeking out younger collaborators for your new projects? Well, I have lots of younger collaborators. I mean, but most of the people, I've, well, virtually everyone I work with is younger than me. Uh, and the, in fact, I say everyone I work with is younger than me, not virtually, all of them are. And the businesses I tend to invest in and get involved with are usually almost invariably run by people a lot younger than me. Um, one of which uh, is not public yet, you know, the chief executive in his 20s. Uh, so that's fantastic. Um, I, look, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was, I didn't sort of seek out the company of older men. It was just, I'm not quite sure how, how or why that happened. Lang, Lang was fascinating. I mean, gosh, he was just. Well, a bloke who knew the, the founding fathers is, uh, in Australia is just phenomenal. Well, it was. It was extraordinary. You know, I mean, he, he uh, and he was, you know, he was, he was 98 or so when I was talking to him, 97, 98, 99. You know, really right up. Uh, I knew him in that since 1973 to 75 range. Uh, and he, he died in 75, not long before we went to Sacramento. But he was, um, he, he was, he was fascinating. I loved all that old, the history of the, I got, I got very interested in probably because of my mother's interest in the history of the union movement and particularly the history of the AWU, which is all ironic given Bill Shorten's background. Um, you say you once aspired to head it. Well, that was my mother's story, <coughs> Andrew, and I cannot give you any warranties about that. It seems highly, <laughs> seems highly improbable to me. But the, uh, but she, but no, she was, she was very, um, I mean, she knew Tom Doherty well. Uh, she wrote, um, she was very good friends with a, a man called Bede Nairn, mm. who was a Labor historian and yes. either Coral, either herself or with Bede wrote the, ADB uh, entry for William Guthrie Spence, and she 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 did it. She knew William Guthrie Spence as a very old man, and she used to correspond with him. Uh, and she did. She wrote quite a bit about the history of the AWU, and I 
I don't know whether that was the reason I got interested in it at university, but I was very interested in the AWU uh, Henry Boot fascinate. Do you know who Henry Boot is? I know the name, but uh, I don't know very much about him. Henry Boot was an Australian poet and, and writer, H-E Boot, B-O-O-T-E, and he was the editor of The Worker, uh, which is the union, AWU's newspaper, which mm. nowadays is a, you know, is a, is a, not a distinguished literary journal, let's put it that way. You're thinking about cancelling your subscription, by the time I don't have a subscription. <laughs> but the, but uh, if I take up, if I promise if I take up shearing, I'll join, join the union. <laughs> but he, um, no, but the worker in those days, you know, was like, was a sort of a rival to the bulletin uh, in terms of circulation. It had a real standing and it was a very influential newspaper. And, uh, you know, it had a huge uh, premises in Castle Ray Street in Sydney. There's now a Greek restaurant on the ground floor. The worker, worker building and you know, big presses there and so forth. So it was a very, it was a very interesting era. And the, you know, this was in the time when there was a lot of interest in the labor movement about one big union. And, you know, the AWU at different times actively aspired to that, to be the one big union that every worker would join. And that's why, <clears throat> you know, the AWU, you know, covers so many you know, different occupations because it was, you know, its aspiration was to be the one big union and, you know, and to get the political strength that came from that scale. I uh, want to ask you about uh, smaller liberalism. Um, I've always thought that Labor should be the party of both egalitarianism and smaller liberalism and uh, in my first speech argued that Labor was the natural heirs to smaller liberalism. So this, this we can say Lee is greater than Lenin because Lenin always used to say the <laughs> Australian Labor Party was a uh, just another liberal party. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, like a stop clock, he was, uh, he was right on that one. Uh, but it would have been harder for me to give that first speech if you'd been leader at the time. Uh, because you have always seen smaller liberalism as being uh, important to your worldview. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you consider yourself shaped as a liberal? How does it mark you out from others in uh, what has increasingly become a, a conservative party? Well, um, I think the, the Liberal Party is genuinely the inheritor of both traditions, but I have to say, Andrew, that most of the people who call themselves conservatives nowadays would not know the difference between Edmund Burke and Tony Burke. Uh, they are, they're not conservatives. I mean, you know, the great hero, at least in America, is Donald Trump. He is not a conservative. You know, there is a, just because you are not a, you know, an activist on the left, and, you know, it doesn't mean you're a conservative. I mean, Bolsonaro is not a conservative, right? Putin isn't a conservative. You know, so the populist, populists, right-wing populists are not, that, that is not conservative, you know. You've got to, they've got to think of a different, uh, you know, political epithet. Um, so the, the problem, the, the problem, I mean, my liberalism, I mean, my liberalism comes from, you know, belief in the individual, uh, a belief in freedom, uh, a genuine 
sense that the government's role should be to enable people to do their best, not tell them what is best. Um, and, you know, I've always felt liberalism, the small L, is the particularly the best approach for our times because you want to encourage as much diversity in terms of uh, economic activity, in terms of uh, ideas and solutions, because now more than ever, because frankly, no one really knows what the right answer to most problems is. So, you know, the, 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 there is no, no one's got a monopoly on wisdom, least of all uh, in government. So anyway, that's, that's my, that's where I come from. But I think the, the sort of right wing of the Liberal Party are not liberals. And I don't think they're conservatives in any meaningful sense either, unfortunately. Yes, that commitment to markets and multiculturalism, I think, uh, does increasingly sit more comfortably on my side of the fence. But that'll be an ongoing arm wrestle. Yes, I mean, I think that's the that's the, the challenge. Grappling for the centre ground in politics is going to be increasingly uh, challenging. I mean, it's, it is significant, I think, in the, for the Liberal Party to reflect on the fact that it has, you know, it had... It has currently two hitherto ultra, ultra safe liberal seats, Mayo uh, and Indi, held by smaller liberal independents. Um, you know, Rebecca Sharkey in Mayo, having been a former member of the Liberal Party, in fact, and formerly worked for a liberal opposition leader in South Australia. And of course, they lost my old seat, Wentworth, to a smaller liberal independent and you know only just able to recover at the general election. So and of course, you know, over in Moringa, although, you know, that vote, you know, you can largely explain that through being an anti abbott vote, nonetheless, it showed that in that seat, uh, that type of um, you know, right wing populism that, you know, Abbott was, you know, I don't know, represented, uh, was just did not appeal. So, you know, there is a there is a centre, there is a, a smaller liberal centre ground uh, in play of how how and who and and, and when it will be, you know, um, tackled is a, is the question. Hmm. You're a uh, terrific uh, speechmaker, and uh, my favourite of your speeches are your eulogies uh, you, uh, for Margaret Whitlam, Neville Rand, Robert Hughes. Uh, your written uh, eulogy for your terrier, Melly. Um, I think I once told you that you should have a permanent position as the uh, ongoing parliamentary eulogist. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a job that many of us will have to do in our lives. Many of us will stand up to give a eulogy. So how do we give a, a better eulogy, Malcolm? Uh, well, I think it's got a bit... Well, I mean, like every speech, it's, it shouldn't be too long. Uh, it should... Uh, it's got to... It's got to go to the essence of the person that you're talking about. Shouldn't just be a you know recitation of dates from a resume, uh, and you know it should sort of reach out for a bit of the that special quality of that particular person. It's got to you know if ever there's a time to reach for a bit of poetic license, it's then. By the way, just on the subject of it being a full-time eulogist, a post to which I absolutely would not aspire, 
<laughs> if nominated, I will not stand. If elected, I will not serve for that one. Ah, the pity for the rest of us. But 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 I do have another role uh, that not for me. But I, I was think I thought my father-in-law Tom Hughes could have filled this. So when John Gordon died, Tom was his dad, who's a great friend of John Gordon's, gave a eulogy, which was uh, largely seen to us sitting in the church and feeling increasingly awkward. Uh, as being uh, an attack on or a recrimination against uh, John's former political enemies, uh, including Martin Fraser, who, of course, was in the church as well. Um, so it was a slightly awkward. And then I thought to myself, however, it was a really magnificent speech. And I thought perhaps uh, there could be an official position for state funerals called the Denunciator General. And the denunciated general perhaps could have special robes, like a big red hood, perhaps, something like that. Uh, and the denunciated general would give a speech in which he or she would denounce all of the deceased's political foes in the most ferocious terms. So you'd have the eulogist who said that the deceased was a kindly person who, you know, was good to, good to their family and you know, so forth, um, and said all the, the good things a eulogist would say, and then the denunciator general can stride on. And uh, I think that would, that would definitely result in higher attendances at, um, at, on occasions like that. An ongoing Mark, Mark Antony role, if you like. Uh, you, uh, you also gave a, a really interesting question time answer at one point, talking about the role that luck has played in your career. Yes. Uh, you said that uh, you thought there were taxi drivers and cleaners who'd worked harder than you and, and that you'd been, been very fortunate. Now, how do you think about luck? And uh, do you think it's underplayed in how others regard careers? Uh, yeah, well, I do. I do. I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of luck. Uh, a lot of chance um, in all of our lives. I mean, you know, there's luck, right? You know, you did you did you deserve to inherit the you know the the, the brains, the genetic uh, your genetic inheritance is as undeserved as James Packer's billions, likely. Um, uh, you know, so we. We're, we're, and, and, or somebody else's debilitating disease, right? So there is, there is, um, there's a lot of luck. I think that you, there obviously you can do things to improve your fortunes, you know, working hard, studying hard, making wise decisions rather than foolish ones. Um, but <clears throat> luck is very important. And so, and there, you know, the point I used to make to the partners at Goldman was that the, there were plenty of cab drivers that worked harder than any of us who earned a lot less. So uh, that's why one of the reasons why Lucy and I have always been uh, generous, uh, you know, and philanthropic. We don't make a big deal out of it, but we've always done that and believe that's very important um, because you know you yeah, there it is. It's, it's kind of it's kind of obvious, really, isn't it? That a lot of people, uh, particularly wealthy people. Uh, get themselves into thinking that somehow or other it's it's deserved or that you know it's meant to be, and that's not true. Hmm. 
a handful of uh, standard questions that I ask all my interviewees just as uh, we wrap up and I let you go off and uh, pick up your grandchildren. Uh, mm. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh, uh, think, think a little more before you speak. Was that a problem for you at the time? Oh, no, but I just think sometimes I... Sometimes oh, you, I, no, oh you wait, know you did once win a poetry contest for, uh, for your, uh, your, your somewhat sexist titled, uh, titled poem. Yeah, well, well, the poem, I had nothing to do with the title. The title was the topic of a debate. Uh, and it's, it's a line of Kipling's. I can't remember where it's from, but the line is, it's, it's mean, it's nonsense. It's a, a woman's just a woman, but a good cigar is a smoke, brackets, whatever that means. And anyway, I made up a thoroughly ridiculous um, uh, sort of parody of Henry Lawson, you know, Banjo Patterson for the Bush Ballad. And that, and it was such a hit. It was, I, gave, I, I, I literally wrote it one afternoon. Uh, amazing, you know, 80 lines or so. And of um, in couplets. And I gave this speech at the Union Night Debate and uh, so I think it's the only time anyone's been asked to give a speech twice. You know, normally people are sort of throwing things at the speaker and telling him to shut up and sit down. But <laughs> I got to do an encore. But then I submitted it for the Henry Lawson Prize for Poetry, which was, you know, worth a couple of hundred bucks, and won it. And my mother was uh, initially thrilled that I'd won it because she'd won it in 1948 or something like that. And then she, when she saw the poem, she was horrified. She wasn't so much horrified that I'd written it. She was just horrified that the literary standards of her alma mater had so deteriorated. <laughs> Worthless piece of doggerel would get a prize. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I can't think of an answer to that, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't... Um, You've had a religious conversion. Uh, yes, yes, that's true. Well, it wasn't really a conversion, but yeah, I became a Catholic. I hadn't, I've actually, uh, hadn't, turned out I hadn't been baptized, which is another sort of story. But the, but, um, yes, I, I don't, uh, I mean, I've always been a, always, I've always believed, I've always been a theist, if you like. Um, uh, but I don't know that I had a dramatic, I haven't had a dramatic change in my spirituality. Mm. Um, no, I can't have to pass on that one. When are you most happy? Oh, I'm most happy when I'm with Lucy, and uh, and that is only enhanced by my family. So I love my kids. I've got two, we've got two lovely kids and, and, the, and their partners, and, of course, uh, our grandchildren, whom we dote on, as grandparents tend to do. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, um, yes, the, the, the two are combined. I think, look, I, I, do, I do a fair bit of exercise. I'm not nothing like you, Andrew, but I, uh, and I gave, I gave up running in my late 20s um, because I concluded that not being, you know, a uh, built like a sort of Kenyan marathon runner as you are, sort of a, <laughs> you know, with a lean and hungry physique, uh, I figured that pounding my running would 
would ultimately do my back and knees in. So I think that was a very good call that I did that. But I walk a lot, uh, mostly with Lucy. Uh, I paddle a kayak. I, um, you know, use all, you know, do work in the gym. I've got an elliptical trainer and I used to have, used to use a rowing machine, but I had a back operation in 2017. So I stopped doing that. So yeah, I do a fair bit of exercise, but the exercise that I find most beneficial mentally is kayaking. I'm not entirely convinced that kayaking is a fantastic physical exercise because ultimately you're only using your upper body. And if your aim is to pump blood through your heart, you're obviously better off using your lower limbs uh, because they're much bigger muscles. So, you know, to get for me to get into the training zone, say a cardio zone in my kayak, I could not um, I haven't tried for years, but you know, it would, I, I could I could only maintain that for, for minutes really. Um, but it is so cosmic. I mean to be out on the water, particularly early in the morning when it's still, sun's coming up, oh, you know, just it is it's sublime. And you know, Sydney Harbour I know doesn't quite have the appeal of Lake Gordy Griffin, but uh, it is uh, It's a useful backup. Yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, just eating too much. Although you did once shed 14 kilograms in a month, and uh, when people asked you how you, de- how you did it, you said, eat less. Eat less, yes, yes, that's right. Or, or it was uh, Annabelle Bennett, you know, the, the judge, you, you know, you probably you know. Yes, Annabelle uh, says, you know, what's the way to lose weight? Just three words, meal by mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Malcolm, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, I think I would say my, well, which person? Um, I would say, I mean, I've had so many great mentors and friends over the years, but I, you know, I have to get back to my dad. I think, uh, you know, he's, uh, he was, he was, you know, Always a very straight shooter and very, uh, just, you know, just so reliable. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in terms of the, 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 critic, the critical thing, you know, it gets just in terms of ethics. I mean, there's so many, you know, aspects of this, but the critical thing that is missing in public discourse nowadays is truthfulness. You know, that, that, is, that is the fundamental problem. It is, it is people are, in, uh, whether it's, you know, journal, media or politicians, uh, do not seem to be troubled by the obligation or do not perceive an obligation to get the facts straight, to, you know, take care to get them straight, or indeed, if, when they know the facts, to actually, you know, tell the truth. I mean that because you know you you can you can obviously state something that is false uh, quite innocently. You know if you you know if you think that you know Great Depression occurred in 1909, you know, and you say that you may not be lying, you're not lying, but you're just you're just inaccurate. And and the and people, I I I I've I've been troubled for a long time about that. Lack of concern about accuracy. I, I mean, my staff used to, uh, 
you know, um, and they were catching up with some of them the other day and they were reminding me that how after question time, you know, more often than not, my first question would be, did I get any facts wrong? Did I get anything wrong? Because I was worried, you know, because as Prime Minister, you know, you get asked questions on every topic, some of the sun, and there's always the concern that you'll misspeak. Uh, so, um, and, and, you know, and I would, as you can call it, I would uh, correct those, you know, if I, particularly if someone said I'd got a number wrong or a fact wrong, I'd be more than happy to correct it. You know, how hard was the same? How was good at that? You know, he would come, he'd sometimes come back into the chamber, you know, in the afternoon when there's a, you know, the second reading debate of the, some boring bit of legislation and there's, you know, three people in the house and he'd come back in and just say, oh, you know, question time, I said X, Y, Z, but it should have been ABC and, you know, that's, and that's good. And we should, we should be fastidious about that. Yes, you had that respect for the institutions. Mm, yeah, well, just and, Malcolm, and respect for the facts. Yeah. yeah. Malcolm, thank you very much for your uh, time today. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull's new book is A Bigger Picture and uh, available in all good bookstores. Thank you for the conversation. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Julia Gillard and Etan Hirsch. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.